Welcome to the 11th episode of the Guernica Accountability Podcast, Justice and Reconciliation. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking to Yasmin Suka and Howard Varney, two monumental personalities in the pursuit of truth, justice and reconciliation, who together have worked in South Africa, Sierra Leone, Sri Lanka, to name just three. Yasmin Suka is one of the world's leading human rights advocates. She serves as the executive director of the Foundation for Human Rights in South Africa. She served on the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission from 1996 to 2001 and chaired the committee responsible for the final report from 2001 to 2003. She was appointed by the UN to serve on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Sierra Leone from 2002 to 2004. And since 2000, she has also been a member of the advisory body on the review of Resolution 1325. In July 2010, she was appointed to the three-member panel of experts advising the Secretary-General on accountability for war crimes committed during the final stages of the conflict in Sri Lanka. And she currently serves as the chair of the UN Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan. Howard Varney is a member of Guernica 37 and a South African barrister practicing at the Johannesburg Bar. His legal practice comprises human rights, constitutional and administrative law. He has appeared in the High Courts of South Africa, as well as the Supreme Court of Appeal and the Constitutional Court. In the early 1990s, Howard was an attorney with the Legal Resources Centre in Durban, where he represented victims of political violence in public interest litigation, judicial inquests and commissions of inquiry. In the mid-1990s, he oversaw an independent criminal investigation in South Africa into state-sponsored political violence on behalf of the police ministry. He served as the chief investigator for the Sierra Leone Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and he has worked with the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the Commission for Reception, Truth and Reconciliation in East Timor. In this episode, we will talk about how they met how they perceived the success or otherwise of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, whether it is a model for post-conflict transitional justice, whether it met the needs of the victims. We will also discuss the work they are now doing, working together again on seeking to hold individuals accountable so many years after the Commission's final status report. Yasmin Suka and Howard Varney, welcome to the Guernica Accountability Podcast. I'd like to start by saying that um, you've both had fairly extraordinary careers in advancing different mechanisms for truth, justice and accountability, working in your native South Africa, as well as in Sierra Leone. My first question really would be, how did you first meet? Perhaps I can ask Yasmin first. I'm not sure if Howard remembers, but... Um, I was a member of the um, national committee that was responsible for repatriating South African exiles to participate in the negotiations in South Africa. And um, I was responsible for organizing a workshop on the indemnity law. And I think I first met Howard there, as well as a number of colleagues, but then, of course, we met um, when I was on the Truth Commission in South Africa. 
and he was um, a member of the um, investigative task unit in KwaZulu-Natal. Um, and I think it was in that context where we wanted to learn about his experiences of dealing with apartheid crimes that we first had our engagement. But that's my recollection of our first meetings. I guess it's only fair to ask Howard if that's that's your recollection as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, Yasmin certainly has a much better memory than uh, th- than I do. So I don't have an independent recollection of that meeting dealing with the returnees. Um, but I, I certainly don't dispute it, Yasmin. So that <laughs> that would have been <laughs> in the the early 1990s. Uh, but certainly, we, as Yasmin says, we we collaborated closely in the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Commissioner, where she was a commissioner. And, and of course, our interests coincided in terms of ensuring that um, we exposed as much of the atrocities uh, of the past as possible. I was overseeing a separate independent investigation set up by the President and the Ministry of Police um, shortly after the democratic elections in '94. And we were asked to prepare criminal cases, um, but we liaised pretty closely with the Truth Commission and in the matters which we could not take further, we handed these over to Yasmin and her colleagues at the uh, TRC. And when we wound up that investigation, we we provided all our reports uh, to the TRC. And that's when Yasmin asked me to assist the Truth Commission on, on a few matters. Uh, which, of course, I was very uh, happy to do. And then a bit later, jumping ahead to 2003, when Yasmin was a commissioner at the Sierra Leone Truth Commission, she asked me to join her there uh, as the uh, chief investigator. And again, because Yasmin asked, I jumped, and uh, it turned out to be quite uh, an interesting and intense uh, experience. That's great. I'd I'd like to get on to the the Sierra Leone um, issues later on, but... One of the the questions that Yasmin I had for you in particular, um, I, I was very interested to to listen to one of the speeches that you that you gave uh, in 2015 on the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and I, and I was interested in your approach in that it was originally the Truth and Justice, or, or supposed to be the Truth and Justice Commission, but somehow later on. The word justice was exchanged for reconciliation. I mean, what what is your recollection of, of how that took place, and how do you think that impacted on the work that you had to do? I first became involved in the discussions around the um, legislation for the Truth Commission. Um, you know, when I was a member of um, this group that included the. Um, religious community, so the South African Council of Churches, the Catholic Bishops, um, the Justice Commission, and I think a number of NGOs in South Africa. Um, We had woken up one morning and we had heard that, in fact, on the night before the interim constitution had been agreed, that one of the last items that had been agreed upon was the fact that there would be this amnesty and um, that the terms of that would be um, determined later on after the elections. Um, And I remember being very, very angry and 
speaking to, um, you know, Dalla Omar, who was a friend and a mentor, who became, you know, the first justice minister in the democratic South Africa. And I remember distinctly him saying to me, well, you know, you guys in the human rights community, you can jump up and down. Um, and it was much ruder than I'm actually, um, you know, in terms of the language I'm using. And he said that either you guys come in and into the process and you help to make this more around the accountability question, um, or otherwise this can become quite an administrative process. And so a group of us and, you know, the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation, so people like Graham Simpson and Paul Fanzel um, and Brandon Hamber, and then, of course, Alex Borain would become the deputy chair of the commission. He had started an NGO called Justice in Transition. And um, some of us from the um, TRC group that was working with the religious community, we joined together and we decided that we would participate in the discussions around the draft law. And, of course, we also brought on board the late George Bezos and um, Mohammed Nafsa, who is now a judge in the Supreme Court of Appeals. But, you know, um, we, we had quite a number of discussions where I believe that we certainly had an impact on particularly ensuring that the rights of victims would be protected. And, you know, one of the things we argued for was that um, the victims should have the right to oppose the amnesty process and they should have the right to have lawyers appointed for them, but also that there should be a separate stream before the Human Rights Violations Committee where they would be able to come forward and, in fact, speak about what had happened to them. But at no point in the process, and I you know, have gone back to think about this, I never actually heard or remembered the word reconciliation. Um, yes, because of the Latin American experiences, we spoke about truth recovery and we spoke about justice. Um, and my impression had always been that this would simply be called the Truth Commission, um, if not the Truth and Justice Commission. And so I have to say that I was completely shocked when the law was actually passed and it spoke about the promotion of national unity and reconciliation. And I can only think that that came in from, um, you know, the other caucuses that were taking place, um, both in the ANC and the National Party, um, because I don't recall um, the use of the word reconciliation. So for me, that was already, I think, a sense of, the direction um, that I think a lot of the um, politicians wanted it to to go in. Um, and having said that, you know, when when you look back at um, you know the 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 reasons for why um, you know there was this deal, I think at the time um, we you know I I was probably one of those who believed that. There were a lot more members of the African National Congress who fought for accountability. But I think more and more as I do research um, around this issue, it becomes very clear 
that there was definitely a group within the ANC who wanted the amnesty as much as um, the generals and the National Party, the former ruling party, wanted because um, at the time um, the ANC was also under siege um, because of the allegations of violations that had taken place in the camps. And so while these discussions were taking place around setting up a truth commission, you also had the ANC having to decide how to deal with the gross violations of human rights that had been perpetrated in the camps in um, Angola and um, in Lusaka. And so I think there was a group who also wanted to make sure that senior members of the ANC who might be implicated would not end up having to be prosecuted. And that's probably what framed, um, you know, a lot of the discussion behind the scenes. And I think that's stuff that we're only discovering now. Um, Yasmin, thank you for that. I mean, one, one, of, the, one of the things that um, I noticed um, that you'd said before, and this is also um, for Howard as well, coming from a, from a criminal law um, um, perspective of, of the work in South Africa. But one of the things that, that I did notice that you said in your, in your remarks in 2015 was that you, you got the sense that, that many of the victims, even yourself, saw the, the result of the commission to be, um, or the anticipated result, to be some kind of Nuremberg-style prosecutions. And obviously that's, that's not what happened um, I mean, what what was the position of, of, of the victims as a result of that? Well, you know, at the time, um, as I, I said earlier, um, we had expected that there would be Nuremberg-style trials. And in fact, um, you know, the lawyers who had been representing many of the victims were having discussions along those lines. And so it was a real shock then um, to hear that this had been negotiated away and that, in fact, we would have the amnesty. And, you know, um, I remember being visited by colleagues from Latin America, but, you know, I didn't put um, two and two together. And maybe that was, um, I suppose, silly of me. But um, I think we were frustrated with the decision but, you know, we also, and, and I remember, you know, I was in Italy at some point and I raised money from the Rockefeller Foundation um, to host roundtable consultations around um, this notion of setting up a truth commission. Um, and this is also where we were, in fact, asking victims what their opinions were. And it was quite a shock because um, a lot of the victims were um, so trusting of President Mandela and um, the ANC um, that many of them in response said, well, if this is what the president wants, then they're happy to go along with that. But having said that, I mean, there were also, um, you know, w when the law, the Truth Commission law was finally published, um, one of the things in the law was the fact that 
not only were people's rights to a prosecution taken away, but also their rights to claim damages. And that angered many families. And this is, of course, what led to many of them then, um, you know, going to the constitutional court with one of the um, political organizations at the time, the Azanian People's Organization, um, and they really brought an application to test, um, you know, the constitutional validity, firstly, of the amnesty law, but secondly, also, um, you know, the extraordinary length to which the law had gone, and that is which had taken away their rights to claim damages. Um, I also remember that, you know, um, it took more than a year for the Truth Commission law to be passed by Parliament. And this was one of the things we had argued with the Minister of Justice at the time, that we didn't want it to be a presidential decree. We wanted it to be a proper parliamentary process, um, you know, in which both citizens and Parliament could participate. And at one point um, in the process, you had the former National Party, um, you know, they brought back um, the clauses which had been in the original draft law that the processes, particularly the hearings of the commission, should be held in camera. Um, and we opposed that and we got victims groups around the country to oppose that. And eventually, um, you know, that wording was removed. Um, but, you know, the Azapo case was also quite extraordinary in, in the sense that um, when you read the, the, the judgment, it's really a political judgment around the necessity of um, why the new democratic state had to go down this road. Um, and looking back, I think there are a number of issues that you can question around the way in which the judges argued this matter. But, you know, victims lost, really. And I think that the case didn't succeed. And that was problematic for many, many of the families. Howard, what was what was your sense um, coming from the position um, in which you approached the, the work of the commission? I have um, similar sentiments to Yasmin in relation to the genesis of the Truth Commission and the compromises that had to be made at the time. Um, like many people involved in um, law and human rights, uh, we were very keen to see justice done in these cases. Uh, but eventually, I think we did come round to the view that uh, compromise was necessary, and we bought into the notion that um, offering this conditional amnesty would be a way to get to the truth. And we expected and anticipated that perpetrators on all sides would make use of this amnesty to come forward, to get things off their chests, to help uh, in the whole process of nation building and reconciliation and to provide the truth that victims and the country so desperately needed. So we were really hoping that there would be this, I suppose, um, cathartic moment that we would arrive at through the amnesty process. The, the so-called middle way that Archbishop Desmond Tutu spoke about. So we had to sacrifice uh, a Nuremberg approach that uh, many of us wanted. But at the same time, those politicians who were wanting a blanket amnesty, they would be 
uh, denied a full blanket amnesty. It would only be a conditional amnesty conditioned on telling the full truth and allowing the victims and the country to um, deal with that truth and, and move on. But as I'm sure you're familiar with, um, that kind of outcome didn't really transpire. We didn't get the full truth that we were we were hoping. Uh, in fact, um, I think it's true to say that certainly on the part of the security forces, they knew uh, what the consequences would be. They knew the constraints in capacity and political will to investigate and prosecute. And it was only in the cases where there were some investigations happening that they felt compelled to come forward and um, cash in this insurance policy, the so-called conditional amnesty. But outside of those cases, very few perpetrators came forward because they simply didn't have any fear of um, any real consequences by way of investigation and prosecution. And so in that sense, um, the amnesty process shortchanged the the nation, uh, in, in my view. Was that the general sentiment across South Africa that by giving up what let's call the, the Nuremberg process um, and, and going for a, a more open truth-telling, which, as you said, didn't result in what was intended, was that the general sentiment amongst the people of South Africa at the time? You know, I think to, to begin with, it wasn't a popular approach, as Yasmin has, has indicated, and certainly amongst most South Africans, particularly black South Africans, and the victims and their families, they wanted to see justice done and, and to see it happen in, in its normal course. Uh, but I think most of them came to the understanding that this compromise was necessary for South Africa to cross the historic bridge from the oppressive past to a democratic future based on respect for human rights, as was eloquently set out in the um, proscript to the interim constitution. But of course, they expected perpetrators to come forward to tell the truth. And as I mentioned, um, they came forward in insufficient numbers. Um, they gave largely a sanitized version of the truth. By and large, they only spoke about what they were were aware that was already in a few investigation dockets that were being taken forward. And certainly senior perpetrators, those up the chain of command, by and large, stayed away. And the few who did come forward, as I mentioned, provided a very narrow account of the, of, of the truth. Uh, and I think many victims and many South Africans felt that that was a lost opportunity. And in fact, uh, the country was deprived of reaching the full truth. I should say that the Human Rights Violations Committee that was spearheaded by Yasmin, which ran really separately to the amnesty process, uh, we can thank them for the sterling work they did uh, through their investigations and research. And they placed a considerable amount of, of truth on the table. And that really comprises the bulk of the um, truth that is now recorded for history in the final report. But in terms of the heavy compromises that had to be made, mostly by victims, uh, I, I think one has to ask you know, whether that was um, a price worth paying, particularly when we look at what has transpired since the um, winding up of the Truth Commission. I'd like to get on to whether 
uh, as you say, it was a political price worth paying and whether, and whether it was in fact a success. But before we get on to that, I mean, it obviously has contributed to not just what's happening in South Africa, but to a, a wider understanding um, internationally of, of what uh, a national process for change and rec- reconciliation should look like. Is that your opinion that it had an impact on our understanding, not just within South Africa, but outside of South Africa too? Um, perhaps I can ask that to Yasmin. Um, you know, when when you look at, I think, the um, what I would call the documentation and the truth recovery part, um, which the Human Rights Violations Committee was responsible for, I would say that that certainly did have a major impact, not just on South Africa, but really on, you know, the whole question of justice around the world. And, you know, in that way, I think the commission was quite innovative um, in that it was the first commission that did hold public hearings um, at which not only victims gave testimony, but also perpetrators had to appear. And of course, um, you know, one of the um, sort of new dimensions was really looking at some of the structural questions in South Africa, you know, the way in which different professions had behaved during the years of apartheid, also looking at the armed forces, the role of political parties and entities, including the liberation movements, and also, of course, um, the role of the corporations. Um, so I think that that part, the conventional, um, you know, use of the way in which truth commissions operate after the South African model, that worked very well. But, you know, when I think back to the amnesty process and, you know, just listening to what Howard has said, I recall that, um, you know, one of the things we were really unhappy about was the fact that um, the judges and the um, Amnesty Committee members had so little appreciation of international law. Um, and, And really, when it came to this dimension of truth recovery, the understanding of it was so narrow. And I think that in many ways, the amnesty process was also manipulated Um, by many of the applicants who came before it. And so at one point, um, you know, some of us went to see the Archbishop to argue about whether or not we could act as an amicus in the amnesty hearings, which would then allow us to um, present the outcomes of the investigations um, and put that before the amnesty committee really to 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 in fact test the truthfulness of what many of the amnesty applicants were saying. And of course, the archbishops didn't want that because he said it would have looked too adversarial. Um, and then there were a number of occasions when, you know, we had to speak to the chair of the amnesty committee um, really to argue about the way in which the process was being conducted and how that was really um, impacting on the rights of victims. So I think that, you know, the the commission certainly was an ambitious project. Um, And at the time, I think, had a massive um, impact on on the world. Um, But, you know, and and 
it's it's not just I think it's I think what what we're also learning and that was certainly um you know going to Sierra Leone I was really angry about many of the things I thought we could have done better um you know one of the arguments that we lost inside the commission was um the fact that there was this narrow focus on civil and political rights violations and so we raised that it was really important to look at the question of land the question of um the way in which the economy had been managed the whole question of job reservation and the racialization that was attached to many of the laws which in fact deprived black south africans of the opportunity to really live as citizens of the country um and and of course within the commission this was a really serious debate and um those of us who were arguing for expanding that lost it um because what we i think probably didn't anticipate was that the commission was also a microcosm of the society outside for instance my deputy had been a former member of the national party um and he belonged to the ruling elite and then of course within the commission we had a number of people who also came from um elite south africa white south africa and corporations and so they really didn't want to go down that line and so you know when you look at um the structural legacy of what we live with today um you know even though we looked at the role played by the corporations i think that um you know we really ought to have looked at the question of what had happened to land because by 1913 97% of the land that was owned by black people had been taken away um and so you know these questions i mean in my view um meant that we didn't do what we could have done better which is to show the beneficiaries of apartheid and also the architects of apartheid that that they had a real responsibility for reparations and um in the period immediately after the commission had handed over um its final reports um you know with the department of justice we arranged two meetings with the business community and i was quite shocked because i think the captains of corporate south africa said well reparations is the responsibility of the state and they don't have to pay in and so despite the fact that the commission had recommended a 1% wealth tax um the government the mbeki administration who had taken over after mandela um didn't do anything about that um and so you realize that in fact um you know the commission had served a very narrow political purpose um and i think that was part of the discovery that we made during the life of the commission um you know at, at one level i think what worked for the commission initially was the fact that it had the support of most of the political parties um but the moment we got we began to look at both um you know the policies and the activities of both the former ruling party and um you know the african national congress um i think it became quite clear that people felt we were trading on their toes um and the anc certainly um by 19 
1997, which was the second year that the commission was in operation, um, we had two really tense meetings with them where they said, well, they didn't feel that um, they had committed any crimes and so they didn't believe that they should apply for amnesty. And I remember a very second tense meeting with them where the Archbishop and ourselves, we got up and we said, well, if you want to interpret the mandate of the commission, then you need to run it yourself and you don't need us. And that is when they decided to make a blanket um, you know, application for amnesty, which the Silly Amnesty Committee granted. And so we found ourselves having to take our own amnesty committee to court to set aside that decision simply because the judges didn't really get it. Um, they didn't get the politics of it or um, legally how they could have done that in a way which would have meant that their final ruling would have been unassailable. And so from my perspective, I think that there are so many challenges around the amnesty process that, um, you know, I'm not sure at the end of the day that it, it, it worked for victims. It certainly worked for the perpetrators who I think managed the process. Um, but I think the victims were shortchanged um, in, in how that worked out for them. Unfortunately, that seems to be very clear. And I think that's, that's unfortunately, it's, it's something that people looking from the outside in very clearly haven't understood one of the one of the questions that I did have, and and um, I'll ask Howard this one. You've partly answered it, Yasmi, but I'm interested in Howard's view. In that you're focused on the obstacles being both a question of political will and legal expertise, and maybe that question's relevant today, where with the attempt of victims to seek justice, and the Attorney General's office still seeking to resist it. I mean. Howard, what was your view on, on the greatest obstacle, or was it a combination of many? Toby, uh, in answer to your question, I, I think it is a combination of factors. Perhaps before I get to that question, if I could just um, add to what Yasmin has, uh, has said, the amnesty process was certainly, uh, and I think today remains, a very problematic one. Perhaps the only tangible benefit or advantage that I can discern is that it may have played quite a big role in persuading various elements in society, particularly those from the security sector in uh, security forces on the side of the state. It may have persuaded them to commit to the transition to democracy. Yes, perhaps there was... One benefit amongst this very problematic amnesty process, and, and that is um, it may very well have persuaded many perpetrators, particularly those in the uh, security forces, not to return to um, violence and to commit to the process because they were given this insurance policy which they could cash in should they need to cash it in. Of course, they would only need to do that if... Um, they were aware that there were investigations proceeding. So there was a special investigation into the police death squads launched by the Transvaal Attorney General following the findings of the Goldstone Commission. And as a result of that investigation and the opening of certain dockets that several police officers cashed in their insurance policy and um, some of them were granted amnesty. And of course, we would have preferred them to um, have been part of the process rather than uh, engaging in 
you know, violent activities. So some of the far-right um, fringe elements, uh, the neo-Nazi types, were doing. And in fact, they were carrying out a campaign of violence and, and bombings at, at that time. So, yeah, I think we have to admit that there was a benefit in, in that it may have contributed towards stabilizing the political situation at, at that time. I think the commission also has to be commended for adopting this fairly open, transparent and public approach to its activities. It certainly was, at that time, probably the most transparent and open uh, Truth Commission uh, to date, and maybe remains so in, in history. And I think it's probably its strongest point was that it really succeeded, I think, in taking much of the country on a journey of discovery. Millions of South Africans were able to follow the proceedings closely in the media, on radio and TV. Many of the hearings, as most of them were in fact public, um, many were broadcast live on uh, radio and TV. There was a weekly show every Sunday evening called Special Assignment, which captured the activities of the preceding week and focused on important and interesting um, issues and stories. And so in that sense, um, I, I think it was the day-to-day work of, of that commission that was really valuable in bringing a new history to many South Africans in showing different communities what had happened in other communities and bringing home the suffering and, 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 and horrors that many had to go through. Um, so it, it was an important and, and valuable experience. But of course, it would be wrong to say that it was the Truth Commission that delivered the new South Africa because we had a transitional process that involved negotiations and, most importantly, a very participatory constitutional reform process, which played an equally important uh, role, perhaps a central role, in, in um, delivering a, a, new South, a new South Africa based on, on new values. Um, there were parallel attempts to reform institutions such as the police and the army and other public sector bodies. Uh, and yes, it has provided something of a benchmark because since uh, the South African Truth Commission, virtually every transitional justice exercise that has proceeded uh, subsequently has always looked to the South African experience and in some respects tried to emulate it and copy it, which certainly in most cases is a mistake because it's not possible to simply cut and paste from one context to another. But I, I do think that there are many valuable lessons and mistakes to learn from the South African exercise. Toby, turning to your question about um, why there has been practically no um, follow-up, and in particular no justice and accountability, you know, in the dying days of the Truth Commission, Yasmin and her colleagues put together a list of approximately 300 cases and delivered that list to the National Prosecuting Authority that, um, you know, Yasmin has the details, but I think it took place towards the end of the 1990s. And there was an expectation that because these were the most serious cases involving murders and disappearances and torture, because, of course, in these cases, amnesty had been denied or amnesty was not applied for, that there would be follow-up. Because after all, this was part of the historic bargain. This is what the victims and families and indeed the whole nation was expecting, that there would be a reckoning in the cases in which amnesty had not been granted or not applied for. Uh, and sadly, this by and large has simply not happened. And one can say, well, it's a mix of factors. 
But I think we need to cut to the chase and, and really set out why virtually none of these cases have been taken forward. And the fact of the matter is that there was an unholy conspiracy hatched between very powerful elements in society, we suspect on all sides of the political spectrum, to close down these cases and to effectively suspend the rule of law when it came to the, what we call the TRC cases, between 300 and 400 murders and disappearances. So this is a very serious matter that we're still grappling with today. In subsequent investigations and in cases that we um, have litigated in the last few years, it has emerged that senior prosecutors and police officers were told to down tools in these cases. They were simply simply said that politicians had taken a view that none of these cases should go ahead. And in the few cases that did, that did go ahead, for example, there's a famous case dealing with the poisoning of the president of the South African Council of Churches, Reverend Frank Chikani, in 87 or 88. Um, he was poisoned by the security forces in an attempt to kill him and make it appear that he had died of a stroke. Um, he managed to survive, luckily for him. Evidence of the poisoning did emerge in subsequent years, uh, and then Attorney General, as we say, National Director of Public Prosecutions, decided to go ahead with that case. And because that case proceeded, even though it ended up in a rather soft and inappropriate uh, plea bargain, with suspended sentences being issued to the perpetrators, as a result of that, um, Vusi Pakori, the then National Director of Public Prosecutions, lost his job. And the head of the unit within the prosecuting authority that was spearheading the case was relieved of his duties and um, frozen out of those so-called sensitive cases. A pattern then emerged that every time there was an attempt to take the cases forward, people were either removed from their jobs, um, sidelined, and effectively these cases were stonewalled. Yasm, myself, and others attempted to persuade police and prosecutors to take up various cases, and we each time we were faced with a barrage of excuses, supposedly lack of evidence, which of course wasn't the case, lack of investigators, dockets going missing, all kinds of uh, tricks to ensure that impunity would be uh, guaranteed. They came up with all kinds of machinations including amending the prosecution policy to give those who didn't get amnesty another bite at that cherry behind closed doors. There was a political pardons process that President Mbeki instituted. We had to go to the courts in both those instances to to stop those initiatives. And frankly, even today, we're still struggling to get justice done. We're still facing very similar challenges. So that, I'm afraid, is the very shameful postscript to the Truth Commission. Not only was the amnesty process problematic for the reasons we have been given, but it's been undermined and, and to my mind, it's been reduced to a de facto blanket amnesty, given that virtually no cases have been taken up. Uh, and that's really what it has become. Because of this political interference, it's, it's in reality a de, flanco, de facto wall-to-wall blanket amnesty. And that's really what we have to call it because more than 20 years later, there have been less than a handful of cases that have been taken forward uh, and families are still struggling 
they have to carry out their own investigations. They have to use lawyers, often pro bono lawyers, to um, threaten litigation or, in fact, go to court. And without these efforts, there is simply no progress. And that's where we are in 2021. So 20 years after the process and the, the, the final status report, the two of you are working together now to try to move this forward in holding individuals accountable. And Yasmin, from, from your side, was that something which has built up over time? Was this the demands by, as, as Howard has spoken about, the families struggling to, to be able to establish any form of responsibility for, for, for what happened to family members? What was the, the, the driving force behind doing that now? Like Howard said, um, you know, in many ways, I guess the struggle for justice is one which has um, been driven by families of victims who lost their lives during that period or with the subject of enforced disappearances. And, you know, the way in which the amnesty process had also been sold to victims in South Africa was that, you know, perpetrators would come before the commission, they would provide the truth in return for amnesty, and where the amnesty had been refused or where they had not applied, then the law would follow its cause. And so this was part of really the guarantee, really, of the rule of law and the notion of conditionality. I mean, at one point, we also had Professor Carl Norgard come in and develop the Norgard principles, which were meant to be used by the Amnesty Committee as guidelines, you know, looking at questions of motive and proportionality, etc., and it became very clear when, um, I guess, when we were in the last period, the last year of the work of the commission, that the Amnesty Committee was going to um, continue beyond, um, you know, um, the first sitting of the Human Rights Violations Committee in 1998, but that there would be many cases which would remain unresolved. And as Howard said, these were the most serious cases in South Africa. And so um, we compiled this list that we then handed over um, to the new head of the Scorpions, which was this new police body that was going to be looking into what they called priority crimes in South Africa. And, you know, by in 2003, we handed over the final set of reports to the Mbeki administration um, and between 2003 and 2005, um, you know, I, I was at the Foundation for Human Rights, which was an NGO that had been set up by both President Mandela and the European Union to really build a human rights culture in South Africa. And even before my time, um, we had supported the work of the Commission. And so the Foundation was starting to be approached by families of victims around what they called unresolved cases, you know, where um, despite the amnesty process, they had not gained um, any real response in terms of, our, of the truth of the fate of loved ones. And so that was when I think Howard and I got together to talk about um, how do we ensure that the National Prosecution Authority issues prosecution guidelines 
um, so that we know that they're taking these cases seriously. And of course, when the first prosecutorial guidelines emerged, um, they were really tantamount to another attempt at giving these guys another bite at the amnesty cherry. And I think that, you know, from 2003 onwards, a lot of our work was really driven by two issues. The one is to ensure that the democratic state did not become further in, in, you know, mired in impunity, either through providing another form of amnesty using the pardons process, using, you know, plea bargains, using a myriad of, you know, mechanisms so that they would avoid the notion of criminal accountability. And the second was, of course, families of victims. And so I would say that um, that is really where in, in, in the post-DRC period that our work really around the question of criminal accountability and real truth recovery um, began to emerge. Um, and, and that, you know, the, the foundation was also able to bring on board one of South Africa's, probably one of the best investigators we know, um, you know, Frank Dutton, who now works for the State Capture Commission. And, you know, we retained him to actually work through all of the amnesty applications so that we could look at what would be viable cases that we could take forward. And in fact, we made that priority list available to the National Prosecutorial Authority. I think the one thing that surprised us, though, was that um, the ANC and the ruling party at the time, um, you know, those in the executive, were very, you know, we had served the political purpose. We had got South Africa through, um, you know, the you know the right wing um, to some extent had been destroyed. Um, the evidence that had emerged before the Truth Commission around the former ruling party had ended up destroying them as well, and the National Party was no more. And so from that perspective, they wanted to put a lid on any further investigations and prosecutions, and Harder has spoken about the political suppression of that. Um, and, you know, whenever I approached people that I knew, they would say to us, well, you know, if we go for them, then they're going to go for us. But I think that in, 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 in later years, I think you begin to realize that the real fear is around the unmasking of those who become informers um, and spies in the pay of the former state. And I mean, this is common to many conflicts around the world. Um, and, you know, the, the, there were many in the ruling party who were really opposed to the work of the commission going any further, despite the legal provision in the TRC Act, which said that the law would follow its cause. Um, but really, it's the, um, I think it's the, the question of families who continue to live in this um, limbo of whether, you know, what actually happened to a loved one. I mean, you know, it's amazing how many families still believe that um, you know, the person that disappeared will return at some point. Um, and for many families, of course, particularly, um, you know, detainees who um, supposedly committed suicide while they were in detention, um, for them, there's a real need to establish that, in fact, their loved ones died 
um, at the hands of the security branch and the apartheid state. And that's really what gives rise um, to um, the spirit, really, around the struggle for justice. It's the way in which so many, you know, the next generation in most instances carry the pain of having to hold their families through this process. And really this quest for justice has come from that generation. One of the things that um, I think is is very apparent from um, the incredible work that you're you're both doing is perhaps the the lack of visibility of the work both inside and outside of South Africa. And let me ask Howard first. So, do do you think that the lack of visibility of the work and the importance of this work? has been an obstacle to getting the national prosecutorial authorities to to take it forward? Do you think greater visibility would force the prosecutor to take many of these cases forward? I think all pressure, be it at the the domestic level or the international level, is, is welcome. I think that Yasmin and her colleagues at the Foundation for Human Rights uh, and, of course, the families uh, and activists themselves and they've in fact formed an organization to represent the, the families. Um, they've done incredible work locally to publicize the lack of, of justice and, and to engage in a very effective naming and shaming um, program. So, you know, they, 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 they uh, including Yasmin and others, have appeared countless times on radio and TV. Uh, they've written op-eds, um, and, and the South African media, I think, is equally incensed at uh, the injustice of what has transpired since the winding up of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There hasn't been that much coverage um, at an international level, and I suppose with the affliction of years, South Africa is no longer the flavor of the month, so to speak, not as uh, topical. Although, actually, just last night, um, Al Jazeera uh, TV, the English channel, launched um, a 30-minute documentary on this very topic, which is an excellent, excellent documentary, and uh, I encourage the listeners to to listen to it. But yes, we would encourage uh, further international uh, exposure because I think the government uh, and the president in particular are quite sensitive to international opinion on this matter. We haven't yet been able to um, engineer that kind of international coverage. So this is something that I do think we need to to work on. Just to add on Yasmin's points, which um, I think are, are instructive, she spoke about the suicides in detention, and it occurs to me that in terms of strategy, legal strategy, we we are in recent years. Although, we, of course, we would love to see prosecutions, given the families have pretty much lost all faith in the prosecutors and police to do a basic job. Uh, We're now pursuing this strategy of trying to get some of these cases to be uh, scrutinized by judicial inquests. In the UK, you might call these uh, coroner's inquiries. Yes, so so the strategy of inquests, I I think, has proven to be quite successful when we can get them, because an inquest, just like a, a coroner's inquiry in the UK or the US, allows the family to take a more active role. In a prosecution, the families and their lawyers have no role to play whatsoever. You know, unless they happen to be uh, a witness, uh, they're simply not involved. Uh, but in an inquest, families are represented uh, by their lawyers. We're able to put 
together the cases we wish to present. We can subpoena witnesses and evidence. We can lead our own witnesses. And of course, we can cross-examine police and other witnesses. And in that sense, we, we, we were able to, to get uh, to the truth, which we wouldn't be able to do in a prosecution, but simply have to hand it over to prosecutors, who in some cases are indifferent, uh, incapable, and dare I say, I'm sorry to say this, not that enthusiastic about uh, pursuing these cases. So unlike civil law jurisdictions, where victims can play a role through um, civil party representation, that's not open to us in most uh, common law jurisdictions. So the pursuit of some form of truth and accountability through inquests uh, certainly is the way to go. But, but even simply to get the inquest to happen, we have to threaten the Minister of Justice and the National Director of Public Prosecutions. In most cases, we haven't got inquests unless we've threatened to take them to court to open up these inquests. Uh, so I just wish to to highlight that as, as a legal strategy which has proven to be useful in South Africa and I think can be usefully pursued elsewhere. Finally, we have sought for an independent inquiry into the political suppression of these apartheid-era cases. Given the massive denial of justice, I mean, in any society, the suppression of several hundred murder cases would be a matter of great controversy and, and concern. And yet so far, we haven't been able to persuade the, the state and the president in particular to institute a commission of inquiry into what happened. Um, Yasmin and her colleagues back in early 2019 requested President Ramaphosa to institute an inquiry. He didn't respond. Um, families of the, of the victims, including those of Steve Biko, uh, the Craddock Four, uh, Chief Albert Latuli and several others wrote to President Ramaphosa in 2019 and again in 2020. They were ignored. Uh, Yasmin and her colleagues, the former Truth Commissioners, wrote again in March of this year requesting a commission of inquiry. The president was given a deadline of the end of April to respond. Needless to say, he didn't respond. Um, now, that, to my mind, speaks volumes. Um, why is it that the state, uh, or why is it that the state is resisting an independent, open, and transparent inquiry into the suppression of hundreds of murder cases? Because without an independent inquiry, we'll never really get to the bottom of how this happened. And if we don't know how it happened and how it was orchestrated, the prospects of it happening again uh, is all too real. And currently, I can tell you that we are working on a potential case. Uh, to compel the president to exercise his powers under the constitution to appoint an inquiry. So uh, watch this space because we may be in court again uh, fighting over this issue. I think it is absolutely extraordinary the, the lengths that you are required to go to um, just in order to, to ensure that the authorities um, are doing what they are legally mandated and required to do. Um, I, I think it is absolutely extraordinary that you have to go to such lengths in order to achieve that. You speak about the suppression of two, three hundred murders, um, and, and the, the fact that there has been no inquiry into that, into political obstruction into those matters, is is, is absolutely mind-boggling. Um, Yasmin, I just have one final question. What, what are your expectations 
on what you will be able to achieve? You know, for me, the question really is about, um, you know, the final credibility really around the compromise that was made um, in the 1990s um, and really to confirm the validity of that, you need for those families who have been left in limbo to be able to access either the truth about what happened to loved ones or alternatively to see those who were responsible for the violations against them prosecuted. And in particular, you know, I'm also looking at um, you know, the apartheid politicians, because when you begin to look at the work of the commission, you realize that, in fact, um, no apartheid politician has actually ever said that apartheid was a crime against humanity and that after 1980, um, the criminal state, <coughs> excuse me, had set up death squads um, to take out anybody who is considered to be an opponent of the state. Um, and yet, you know, it's the foot soldiers who really came before the commission. The politicians were in denial. And in fact, right up until August last year, um, you know, former President de Klerk had kind of always said that apartheid was wrong, it was a mistake, it didn't work. But there was not a single moment when he said that apartheid was a crime against humanity. And in fact, um, you know, he was invited by the American Bar Association to deliver a speech around reconciliation um, and the value of the South African process. And we managed with the assistance of many families to get him disinvited, but we also challenged the way in which he had always spoken about apartheid. Um, and it was so shocking when he said that he didn't know that the United Nations Security Council had declared apartheid a crime against humanity. Um, and he's one of those politicians who sat at the State Security Council, which was a body that was formed in the 1980s, and almost acted as a parallel state where the instructions were given to take our political opponents. And so he's one of those people who I believe should be indicted and should stand trial. And so for me, I think that's an important accountability question. But really, it's also about how we can provide some element of truth to the families um, because what's happening in my country is that the next generation is having to carry this burden of the search really for truth and the pursuit for justice, which is quite shocking. But then, you know, criminal accountability is in short supply around the world. I think as we can see in many, many different situations. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we can we can look at um, even some of the other places where where, where you have worked, um, Sri Lanka, um, as a as a prime example, um, that there is a, a distinct lack of focus on, on accountability in many different regions of the world, which is uh, uh, I think we live in in very worrying times, uh, unfortunately, where, where there is that that lack of attention. 
Yasmin, what does accountability mean to you? Um, and what should we be doing better, taking into account this complete vacuum of accountability we are presently facing? It's a question I think that I've been asking myself for um, a long time, because if you'd asked me this question 10 years ago, I would have said that the only answer to accountability is, um, you know, and, and, you know, I've always looked at, you know, what Carl Jaspers and Hannah Arendt said about, um, you know, the different categories of responsibility. Um, and I would have argued that it's really about acknowledging um, you know, the, 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 the crime or the violation that had taken place and making sure that um, there's some way of restoring the rights of victims, um, those whose rights have been violated. Um, and, you know, before I would have said that criminal accountability is perhaps the only way. Um, but I do think that um, what we are facing within you know, in, in, in these turbulent times is denial. Um, and I think that accountability is about confronting that denial and really dealing with this question of the acknowledgement that the crime was committed or the violation and really taking both political and moral responsibility for it. Um, and in that context, there are many different ways of um, dealing with accountability. And I think that we've seen the expansion of that toolkit really around the world um, in some ways, sanctions, um, putting people on travel bans, um, because to some extent we, we, we have to be creative around this question. But I think first and foremost, it's about dealing with denial um, because that denial is what really destroys um, the fabric of a society and individual victims and their families too. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's a point that, uh, um, you know, a Syrian victim made or uh, that, you know, the denial of the fact that the government was responsible for torture is really an annihilation of the rule of law. And, and I think that's the battle that we are fighting across the world and in my own country today. Um, and I think that my job is to make sure that the next generation knows what the history of South Africa was, because otherwise um, I think people will believe that apartheid was simply wrong, not that it was a crime against humanity. And I think that's really a critical issue going forward. Well, I think we we all hope that um, both you and Howard um, continue to, to do that for some time yet. I think it's important, as you said, not just to South Africa, but to the rest of the world too. And so I think it's incredibly important. Yasmin, I would like to thank you um, sincerely for taking the time um, out of your schedule to, to talk to us today, uh, along with Howard. Uh, I think it's been uh, an incredible journey that you've taken us on. It's certainly been a learning experience for me um, to, to hear about something I thought I knew a lot about, but very clearly uh, I knew very little about. Um, so I, I would like to thank you both for, for uh, taking us on that journey. No, no, thank you very much. I think we do need a lot more visibility around this question. Otherwise, people think that South Africa is this perfect um, picture poster 
boy for reconciliation. And I think that's something we have to debunk. So thank you. With Yasmin and Howard today, we were taken on a journey of seeing whether justice and reconciliation are mutually compatible. We heard that the victims of apartheid and their families are still waiting to see those who committed such horrors held accountable. We were able to see that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa may not have delivered as one would have expected or even hoped. We are extremely grateful to both Yasmin and Howard for taking us on what is very clearly a personal journey of reflection. If you enjoy these podcasts, as we hope you do, please do follow the series on our website and feel free to post on social media with any comments you have. You can find our website at www.guernica37.com where you can find more details about what we do and where we do it and find all of the podcasts in our series. You can follow us on Twitter at GuernicaLaw37. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. We hope to bring you interesting accounts from all around the world. In the next episode, we will be talking to another giant of international justice. But until then, thank you for listening. This is the Guernica Accountability Podcast. Until next time, goodbye.